You're listening to Not The Wifey Type, the podcast, a cape-free zone where we share stories and break down strength and struggle narratives to reimagine lives with us at the center. I'm your host, Kayla Charleston. Now let's get into it. I think most people at some point have experienced perfectionism or have felt pressure to live up to some kind of standards of perfection. But I think that for black women, it's a particularly unique experience since there are so many people who are critical of just about everything we do. And that's the topic of today's episode. We're talking to a licensed psychologist about the pressure black women feel to live up to certain standards and how perfectionism might be a trauma response and how this disaster of a year 2020 and everything that's happening could be exacerbating your sense of perfectionism because of the collective trauma that we're all experiencing right now. So I've experienced perfectionism in multiple areas of my life, but I think the area where I have felt it most has been academia and specifically stepping stepping into a teacher role or a professor role. Um, so I started teaching at 25. I taught my first college class at 25, which meant that I wasn't that much older than like the average student. And there were some students who were older than me. So, um, it was just a lot for me to step into a teaching role as a young black woman. And so that was one of the two things that impacted my strong, like urge to, measure up to some standards of perfection it was being hyper aware of how people might perceive me as a young black woman in the classroom but also it was the expectations that I had set or the understanding that I had of what it meant to be a professor before I stepped into the role so before I got to grad school before I stepped into a teaching role my understanding of what it was to be a professor was Professors were these all-knowing, brilliant, wise experts who just mastered everything in their field and knew everything there was to know about, you know, their field and their subject matter. And I quickly learned after I stepped into the role that that was not the case. And professors are not infallible and not even just from my own experiences, but from having colleagues who had room to grow in terms of the mastery of their mastery of you know, their field and their subject matter. And I think that really impacted the bar that I set for myself in terms of teaching. And I knew, and in terms of like how people would perceive me as a young black woman in the classroom, I knew that there would be people who would not give me the same credibility that they would give white men off the bat just for being white men, um, because I was a black woman. So I knew that my credibility might be questioned as a black person and as a woman, especially as a black woman who was teaching about inequalities and racism and sexism and all these different things. People tend to think that if you belong to the marginalized groups that you're, that you're talking about, that you're teaching about, that you, um, are, you know, automatically biased and you're automatically super emotional and you can't particularly I mean you can't um you can't be speaking objectively which objectivity is false nobody's really objective but anyway people like to use objectivity to discredit you 
So I knew that I would be going up against those kind of challenges um, as a black woman showing up in the classroom. So I set the bar extremely high. I felt like I had to prove that I was intelligent and, you know, that I that I knew everything there was to know about the subject matter, about sociology, about African-American studies, because those were the areas that I taught in. And I felt like there was no room for error because, again, I thought that professors were all knowing and I knew that there would be people who would already be questioning my competence off the bat. So um, it really I think it really impacted how I did show up in the classroom and it kind of became sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I, uh, I really internalized knowing that there would be some students who um, didn't necessarily respect my intelligence or my competence and it impacted my confidence. It impacted how I showed up in the classroom in terms of you know, not being as assertive as I needed to be to handle students who would take advantage of an opportunity to kind of question my, my credibility. And so both things were true at the same time. I was experiencing certain questions to my credibility based on me being a black woman that my white male colleagues didn't experience. But also I was internalizing it in a way that empowered students to take advantage of that. So my first two semesters were particularly challenging because I think it was more clear in those semesters that I wasn't as sure-footed as I became in later semesters. So I did have students. So let's be clear. In pretty much every, just about every semester that I taught over the course of six or seven years, I had students, at least one student who would try to challenge me in some way. And, you know, I could pretty much surmise that it was because I was a black woman and they didn't necessarily respect me in a, in a, in an authority position. However, the first like two semesters that I taught, it was particularly egregious. So um, I had more students than usual based on over the course of the six or seven years that I taught. I had more students the first like two semesters that would openly challenge me or openly dispute facts that I would present. Because I came to class with facts, like with data, with statistics, with proof of these inequalities. And they would, you know, try to dispute me based on their opinions and um or would you know not show basic respect in the classroom talking over their classmates even though I asked them to raise their hands and wait or talking over me (laughs) when I was teaching and that's something that I have literally never seen in a classroom that I've been in with a white male professor is students openly talking over the professor so And I'm not saying it didn't happen, but I ain't never seen it. So um, I did have those challenges, especially in the first two semesters. And it got to a point, I can't remember if it was the first semester or the second semester, but it got to the point for one of these classes where I absolutely dreaded going to teach the class. And I showed up, I came to the building where the classroom was taught, where I taught the class, 
And instead of going to the class, the classroom, I went to the bathroom and I went in the stall and I locked the stall behind me and I cried <laughs> like hard. And, but it was a silent cry because I didn't want nobody to know I was in there crying. So I cried and I tried to get it all out. And then afterward, I splashed water on my face trying to, you know, I didn't want it to, my face to look puffy like I had just been crying. And then I went and I taught the class. And I think it I think it did end up being as bad as I dreaded it being. <laughs> but it was a lesson for me because I I I dreaded that class not only because of how the students were responding to me and responding to my teaching methods, but also because I felt like a failure. I felt like I was failing and I wasn't living up to this standard that I had set for myself and for my teaching, which honestly was unfair because it was it was way too high. It was based on standards that nobody could reach, but also like I was just starting teaching. So, of course, I was going to have some hiccups and I wasn't going to everything wasn't going to go smoothly. So it was just it was just way too much pressure for for me, this bar that I had set. What happened over time is that I relaxed those standards some and I started to show up more authentically. And it got to a point where on the first day of class, that's how I opened class. I would be like, look, I'm a black woman. I know you see it. And I already know some of y'all might have some trouble respecting it, but I'm going to just let you know, don't start no shit, won't be no shit. And that's how I would start my classes as, as the years progressed of me teaching. And what I actually found was that when I started to show up more authentically in the class and, you know, stop trying to aspire to this bar, this, you know, that was way too high that I started to have more fulfilling and enriching connections with students. And it was like they were able to see me for me as a person, as a human, as well as me to see them. And we were able to, to make better connections. And so I still, I really cherish the connections that I have with my students, especially now that I'm not in academia anymore. And I have students that I do keep in contact with or that keep in contact with me um, and I, it has been one of the most fulfilling jobs that I've ever had was, is to be able to make these connections and to have people, to have the recognition for my humanity and their humanity be mutual and be reciprocal and to not, to have relieved myself of the pressure of being this sort of professor bot that was knowledgeable about every single thing and, you know, had an answer for everything. Because, in honesty, I didn't. And it wasn't fair to myself to put that pressure on myself. So that's kind of a life lesson that after I was more authentically me in the classroom is when I, w- I felt more fulfilled in my life, in my profession, and beyond. So I think from that you can take that these standards and these bars that we're trying to reach are a lot of times arbitrary and um they they hold us back from better having better in life and most importantly you are already enough i was already enough as i was stepping into that classroom i was already enough as who i was with the knowledge base that i had and it took lowering those bars 
for me to see that I was enough and to see that people would appreciate me and respect me and grow to like me and care about me as I already was. So that's what today's episode is about. Different ways that you can come to understand that you're already enough, just as you are. And I am excited about today's guest. She is one of the sweetest people that I know. It is Dr. Marquetta Sims, who is a licensed psychologist and the founder of the Worth Wisdom and Wellness Center. I always have to say it slow (laughs) in Atlanta, Georgia. How are you today, Marquetta? I am doing pretty good. Thank you so much for having me, Kayla. And I also think that you're the sweetest person. So there's that. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. So I wanted to actually start by telling you, since the topic for today is like perfectionism and, you know, kind of trauma and things like that. I wanted to start by telling you that you kind of called me out about my perfectionism. And I don't even think you know that you did. (laughs) I did not know that. No, it it was fine. It was in a good way. It was you draw you drew attention to it. And it it was when I posted um, uh, the logo for my podcast on Instagram and I, you said, okay, Dr. Kayla Charleston. And I was like, or yeah, I think you said, okay, Kayla Charleston, PhD. And I responded that I was like, I had debated on whether or not to put the PhD there. And you were like, girl, you, you like you playing. Why, why would you, you know, debate about that? And for, I had to stop and think like, okay, she's, she's kind of right. And for me, it was a matter of like, identifying as somebody with a PhD holds a lot of weight to me. And it's not necessarily that it's kind of like I put other people's perceptions of, you know, what they think someone with a PhD should be like, you know, they should be really smart and they should always have smart things to say and they're never wrong. And like when I compare myself to my own standards, I feel smart and intelligent. So I'm always, it feels like projecting what other people should think about me as a person with a PhD. And so I had to kind of check like my perfectionism. Right. And so that almost stopped me from doing this whole podcast. Cause I was like, if I put this PhD on here, people are going to be judging me and stuff. So yeah, I thought that I thought I would start with that because that was a perfect example of how sometimes perfectionism can get in the way. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. You ready for me to talk about perfectionism? I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you're so accurate in that, that we have these ideas. So let me back up a little bit. When I think about perfectionism, I don't think just about this idea that you have to be perfect to do something Mm -hmm. or everything has to be X, Y, and Z kind of way. When I talk about perfectionism, I talk about having this bar that's set like really high for what something is. And then you're constantly trying to strive for that bar. And then every time you get even close to the bar, it keeps moving up and it keeps moving up. And so you're never satisfied with anything that you're doing because it never feels like enough. So you get a whole PhD, right? Like you go through school and you do all this work and you write a dissertation and you get people to sign off on it. And then you don't post it because your bar for what the world thinks of PA, quote unquote, thinks the PhD is supposed to be is so high that at what point do you get to say, I'm enough with this PhD? And so, yes, that is that is definitely an example of how perfectionism can really paralyze you and get in the way of you actually acknowledging the accomplishments and the successes in your life. 
Yes, yes, exactly. So speaking of um, perfectionism and this bar, and since this is a, a show for Black women, let's talk about some of the ways that Black women might feel pressure to be perfect or this bar that they're always, you know, aspiring to achieve or reach. Oh, yes. So many. So one of them that I noticed that I think a lot of people can relate to is the fact that Black women often want to go back to school and get more degrees to prove that they know things. And so if you're one of those people that feel like you need to prove to know things, stop that. <laughs> like, you don't have to go get another degree, another certificate. I actually vowed not to do that anymore this year because I don't need to prove anything else. So I think that's one way that it shows up. I also think that the messages that we got um, as children, particularly as Black women growing up, or as Black children growing up, is this idea that you have to work twice as hard to get half as much. And so even though in a lot of ways that it's very true in society, what we manifested that as it was we have to be perfect in order to get anything and so I'm going to do all of the things that make me more acceptable in this world that doesn't want to accept me I'm going to do everything to prove and to show that I'm worthy and valuable enough to be here and that looks like making sure that my hair and my nails are on point all the time, making sure that I'm trying to live up to whatever this standard of beauty is in this society, making sure that I have the PhD, making sure that I have the nice cars and the nice house, always constantly working over time to do the right thing to make sure that we don't fail because society is already set up for us to fail. So those are some of the ways that I see it showing up for Black women. Mm -hmm. That you, the part where you said do the right thing, that right there is, uh, I think, huge for Black women because there, there's, mm -hmm. there's so much out there about what is the right way for us to show up in the world. Like you mentioned, your hair and your nails and um, just the way that we look or the way that we present mm -hmm. our bodies and, um, you know, even like things like motherhood. I feel like there's a lot of pressure for Black women to you know, be to to be perceived as fit mothers because there's all this stigma around motherhood. And um, at work, you can't show too much emotion because then you'll be the angry black woman. So there's just all these different ways that and then in relationships, like what you have to do or who you have to be to get a partner. So just all these different ways that black women are flooded with, you know, opinions and messages about what's the, the, the right thing to do or the right way to be. It's a lot. Yeah, and it puts us in a box, right? Like it puts us in this little space of you have to be exactly like this in order to be accepted, in order to be loved, in order to be valued, in order to be enough. And the crazy thing about perfectionism is that one, there's no such thing as being perfect. So all of these rules are not even real and not even valid. Or the idea that like there is a right way to do something. Because mm -hmm. what is the right way? to do something? What is the right way to live? Like, can anybody really define that? The answer is generally no, because no right way fits everyone. But we spend all of this time trying to fit into everybody else's perception of who we're supposed to be, which of course is a survival mechanism, right? Like it's the way that we are taught to thrive, but it's also the thing that burns us out and makes us extremely exhausted as Black women. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so speaking of burns us out and makes us exhausted, um, what do you think are or what do you know are some of the impacts of perfectionism for black women? Well, one definitely is the burnout and it is it the burnout shows up in ways that 
are so subtle that I think a lot of times people don't even notice it. So it's not just like, oh, I'm burnt out, but it's more of I'm constantly working over time. I can't take a break. I can't slow down. I can't rest. Like one of the things that I'm really passionate about trying to push now is rest, girl. Like take a nap, take a break. And Black women will not do that. It shows up in this idea that we have to take care of everybody at all times and we have to sacrifice our well-being and our sanity to take care of other people. And we won't, like we can but we won't at this present moment go into the overlay of Christian beliefs around that. And even if people that don't identify as Christians, because there's so many black households who instill those Christian values into their children, that is another overlay of like this servant mentality that black women tend to embrace, this mammy mentality that black women tend to embrace, whether consciously or unconsciously. It also shows up in like, when we think about love and relationships, in general, it's just not having good boundaries and essentially feeling like I kind of have to take whatever because the pickings are so slim. <laughs> like, And if I'm at least having someone to love me, then why would I push away someone that's at least showing me the bare minimum of love? Um, and so it can be detrimental to our workplace environment. Imposter syndrome, I think, has a lot to do with perfectionism, um, which I think Black women tend to just experience on a lot of bases. So it limits the ability to progress at work. It limits the ability to fully feel calm and connected and close in relationships, it impacts the ability to be vulnerable. You cannot have strong, solid relationships without being vulnerable because you feel like perfection doesn't leave a lot of room for vulnerability. It doesn't leave a lot of room to take risks. But if you're not able to take off your strong Black woman cape and be vulnerable in a relationship, it's really difficult to build those deeper connections with people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You you are calling me out once again because <laughs> <laughs> I have I have struggled with vulnerability um, and I've also struggled with imposter syndrome. Definitely going through grad school um, and being in academia, which is an environment that is not necessarily friendly uh, or welcoming towards people of color or women. So let alone being a black woman. Um, so, you know, that was a huge struggle for me is um, even though I've I know that I've studied extensively and, I, you know, I have the the proof that, you know, I should be an expert in this. Um, I had doubts about whether or not I fit in with my colleagues and things like that. So, yeah, imposter syndrome was huge for me yeah. um, and vulnerability, too. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you think or do you feel that. um Perfectionism is related to trauma. Absolutely. And the way that it relates, um, because I do work with, I love doing trauma work because perfectionism shows up so much. And those are like my two favorite things to work with. Mm. But if you think about trauma, it's generally like at its core, a loss of control. So someone is assaulted. They're not in control of that situation. Someone's in a abusive household where their family, their parents are constantly arguing. They feel out of control. Someone is in a um, a terrorist attack, like a natural a natural disaster happening. You feel a sense of loss of control. So what do you do? 
you try to find ways to control your life and you try to find ways to control the situations that you're in. And the best way to control something is to have very rigid boundaries around what something looks like. And so in doing that, you you create these ideals of what perfection is. Again, remembering that perfection is not about being perfect. And so for some people, their trauma was that you had to be perfect to avoid getting punched in your face. You had to oh, you had to be perfect to avoid bad things happening to you. So yes, that is a part of it, but also that rigid control, that wanting to make sure that everything is done just right to ensure that you're safe and protected, that is absolutely a trauma response. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so can you um, tell me how you define trauma as a, as a therapist? So <laughs> I knew you were going to ask me this and I was really trying to figure out like... <laughs> What is the best way to say this? So I define trauma very broadly because I believe that there are so many life circumstances that can be traumatic to people and the response to those situations is what makes it traumatic. However, or and we'll say, we have a certain criteria for diagnosing things that are related to trauma. And so we often talk about big T trauma versus little t trauma. And the big and the little t is not about significance or importance or whether or not one is more traumatic than the other. It's just that in our diagnostic manual, trauma is defined as, as those things and where your life felt like um, your you felt like your life was in danger or being threatened or someone that you loved was experiencing something like that. So those are like the assaults, the natural disasters, 9-11, like those kinds of things are big T traumas. Whereas our small T traumas are things like seeing videos of Black bodies being murdered live on your Facebook feed every Mm -hmm. other day, right? It's things like having an abusive relationship, a verbally abusive relationship, a psychologically abusive relationship where you can't necessarily see the tangible aspects of that is still a traumatic event. Being in a car accident, right? Like, even though they are technically not big T traumas, the reactions to that the physiological, psychological responses to it, that is what makes um, trauma a lot more inclusive to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that definition because I think it allows for people to, um, I, I I think for a lot of people, they don't necessarily realize or don't think that what happened to them or their experiences have been traumatic. So I like the idea of a broad definition of trauma because it can encompass so many different things and allow people, you know, to honor their responses to their experiences. Yes. Oh, for sure. I have so many people, so many clients that I work with that come in are like, this happened to me, this happened to me, this happened to me. And I'm having all of these reactions. And then I diagnose them with PTSD and they're like, but wait, how? <laughs> like, how did we get here? Because that, that is trauma. Like growing up in the hood, honestly, like let's just call a spade a spade. There are some traumatic events that happen when you're growing up with people shooting off across the street. Like you constantly in the midst of wondering whether or not something, a gang is going to start fighting around the corner or something like, no, that's not necessarily happening directly to you. But those kinds of environments feeling unsafe and feeling unstable, those experiences are traumatic. And we still are not even talking about historical trauma, generational trauma. Slavery was still traumatic for every descendant 
of a slave, right? Like Mm -hmm. moving us away from our home continent, that is traumatic. And so that is why I think it's so important to really bring all of those things in because if we start to categorize them just based on what this diagnostic is saying, it takes away from all of these other lived experiences and just doesn't capture the full context of what people are experiencing today. Mm -hmm. And I also think it's important for, especially for Black women to have the space to, um, you know, to be able to feel what their responses are um, to trauma. Because I feel like that's part of trying to be perfect or trying to measure up to this bar is that um, we're not allowed to, you know, take inventory of how we feel like we have to keep going and keep pushing and we're not allowed to, you know, be hurt or be broken or whatever, because we have to take care of so many other people. Um, So, yeah. So speaking of trauma, um, would you, in your professional opinion, say that like, 2020 in general, this year has has been traumatic for (laughs) collectively for us. Absolutely. Like if we, I don't know that we have talked enough about collective trauma in the past, but this year for sure has been that because we started off this year very hopeful, right? Like 2020 was supposed to be an amazing year. All the holidays lined up. Halloween is on a Saturday. Christmas and New Year's is on the weekend. We were planning on turning up this whole year. And then March seeps in and all of a sudden we're quarantined. So we're snatched from, again, our normal environments. We're snatched away from safety. There's so much uncertainty, so many questions about what's happening. Are we going to be okay? Right? And then in the midst of being isolated and socially withdrawn from people, we're seeing these images that we've been seeing for years, forever. Like we know what police brutality looks like. We know what bodies look like being murdered and scrolling up and down our social media feeds. But to have that mixed with the pandemic, mixed with the political environment, mixed with people, other people having this awakening of social injustice, all of that together, again, that small T trauma, those things are traumatic because we're not only questioning our life based on a pandemic that we have no control over, we're also afraid, even more afraid to go out and interact with people that could potentially take our lives, right? Black women are not always counted in the number that police brutality impacts. And doubly, we're worried about the Black men in our lives, the Black sons. Like I've seen so many Black mothers talk about their Black sons and their fear every time they leave the house. So you don't know if COVID is going to get them or the police is going to get them, right? (laughs) Like, all of those things. And then we still have to get through November. So it's just like this constant cycle of being hit with questions and uncertainty and fear around what the next move is going to be. And then on top of that, you have death after death after Mm -hmm. death, not even just within our families, but these large um, communal deaths. And each one is hitting us in a very different way. So yes, like there is a collective trauma that is happening 
for Black folks and Black women right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, another thing that I just thought about is the death of our um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yes. And so the the fear of losing even more rights, because, you know, as Black people, we already, you know, have issues with our our rights being respected and protected, but yes. the fear of losing even more rights on top yep. of that. So it's a lot. It's a lot going on right yeah, now. It's a lot. Um, how do you think that, or do you think that perfectionism uh, or the the trauma that's happening collectively and, and the perfectionism that Black women might feel are um, r- related or they impact one another or their implications for the other one? Yeah, so I think that it's kicking it into overdrive because there's so much uncertainty, there's so much fear, there's so much just question, is that our reaction has not been, let me chill out, let me calm down, let me take a nap. It's mostly been, oh, I got to start a business, I got to invest, I got to go out, I got to start a podcast. No shade, Kayla, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I can't, I can't, I'm just, I'm totally Okay, that's kidding. it, you just don't interview <laughs> over. <laughs> I'm totally kidding, right? I started a whole business right before the pandemic. It's fine, JK. But there is, it does seem like that energy of I got to do, I got to do, I got to do, I got to go, I got to do. The bar needs to be higher. If I I remember at the beginning of March, that whole, if I don't have a new hobby by the end of this pandemic, I'm not doing enough. Or if you don't have a new business started by the end of this pandemic. And I was looking at everybody like, y'all. We are in a pandemic. This is not a sign to go out and like do more. It is a sign mm-hmm. to chill, right? Mm-hmm. And so that perfectionism that comes out in people though is what do I need to do to get in control of what's happening right now? And usually busyness is the way that we find control. It's filling our schedules up, doing all of these things so that we don't have to deal with what's actually happening and that difficulty with sitting with those anxious feelings because trauma the typical general trauma response is anxiety is hypervigilance that desire overwhelms us and takes over and creates it creates a space where we don't want to have to deal but Mm -hmm. we want to withdraw right Mm -hmm. and so Busyness, being distracted, binge watching on all the TV shows possible, right? Those are distractions. And I think that that is, that's something that's really come up a lot with all of this. Yeah. And I have, I can speak to that personally because like I have had family who has been impacted uh, by the pandemic in, in terms of employment. And so like it fell on my shoulders to kind of help out and make sure they stayed afloat. And so for me, I'm like, it's, I'm kicked into overdrive. Okay. Like how do I make more money? How do I make more streams of income? Cause now I got to worry about like, if I'm gonna keep my job and how I'm gonna keep other people afloat in my family. So definitely. (laughs) And I think that that's one of the reasons that perfectionism can feel so unique for black women is that it's not just about us. Like I am big on boundaries. I am big on teaching boundaries and making sure that people have good boundaries and just practicing good boundaries. And in a lot of ways, when I talk to people about their perfectionist tendencies, it's usually related to someone else. I got to take care of this person. This person had these expectations and these ideals for me. And not that that's a bad thing. Like, of course, if family is struggling, like do what you can. But I also think that we 
often have to, as Black women, we have to tap back into the source of where that comes from and make sure that we are not overdrafting our bank accounts trying to pay for the whole family's mortgage mm-hmm. and rent. And that if we're not able, so this is the other part that the perfectionism comes in as, if we're not able to do that, knowing that you're still enough. It's not that you're not enough because you're not capable of taking care of your whole family. That's an idea that is that is bred in perfectionism is that if I can't do all of these things, if I can't start a business and have 20 million sources of income so I can protect my whole family, I'm obviously not enough. And that is damaging and toxic. And you will you are enough as you are today, period. Mm-hmm. Okay, listeners, I hope y'all are getting something out of this because I'm getting a therapy session out of this, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yes, girl, this y'all free said This is only giving away like one time. <laughs> so you kind of touched on this already but do you think um have you ever noticed patterns in how um, black women deal with trauma yes um so let me see i'm trying to think of other ways that we haven't already talked about and actually one that i will say is kind of the um a little bit of the opposite of what we were talking about earlier is that i think black women who have experienced trauma sometimes hide and try to make themselves small and silence themselves and try to avoid being put in the front and center. Because similar to what you were saying earlier, once you put yourself out there, you expose yourself to criticism, you expose yourself to um feedback, whether it's good or bad, right? You are looked at as if you have to know all the things and that can feel really unsafe. So one of my um, supervisors a long time ago made this comment to me one time about Black women who've experienced trauma who are in heavier bodies Sometimes that is a trauma response because they use the food and the weight to keep people from being attracted to them so that people will be less likely to hurt them. Right. So there are anecdotal ways that we we try to create a barrier around people harming us, people who um, are very guarded and won't let people in. And not are not just falling into the stereotype of angry black women, but literally are like angry, right? Like there are some of us who are just angry and it's fine. But right. typically that um, shield and that guard that they put up, it's to protect them. It is to feel safer because if I keep you at arm's length, it's this idea that you can't you can't hurt me. Um, and so those, I would say, are two other kind of more common things of that guard being put up and kind of engaging in these behaviors that really keep people away and keep people from having any kind of um, any kind of way of impacting or negatively impacting us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Okay, good. So yeah, so let's talk about um, what might be some some suggestions for people who um, for for women, Black women, since this is a show for Black women who may be experiencing perfectionism or uh, feel that pressure. And I know for me, I go to therapy, um, and one of the tools that my therapist suggested was an app called Headspace, which um, is about meditation and teaching you how to breathe and you know how to be present and how to be mindful and stuff. So for me, that was that was a game changer, especially um, I, I started this. I started with this therapist after the pandemic hit. So like when the pandemic first hit, I was a wreck. I couldn't concentrate at work. Like I wouldn't get anything done. I could barely sleep. It was it was terrible. But like I started doing this app, which teaches you how to breathe and be present and stuff. And I, you know, could feel myself being more like at peace and not necessarily letting the anxiety about like my job or having to provide for other family members get the best of me. Right. So that, that, that idea of you can't control what you can't control. Yeah. So that was one thing that um, helped me. What do you think might be uh, uh, some other tips or suggestions for people who might be feeling that pressure, especially right yeah, now? Definitely. But first I echo everything that you just said, definitely get a therapist. <laughs> um, there are lots of opportunities to have access to a therapist. So definitely do that. Headspace is hands down one of my favorite apps. Um, but one of the other things or a few of the other things that I would suggest is really doing some self-reflection around what, where are these beliefs coming from? Like where, if specifically if we're talking about perfectionism, thinking about what got you here. Journaling is a great way to do that. Meditating is a great way to do that. And honestly, when I say meditating, I'm not even talking about it having to be this super like enlightening experience. It can literally be sitting down for five minutes and focusing in on your breath. Like totally easy peasy. But really taking that time to draw inward so that you can reflect for yourself and get an understanding of where those beliefs come from. The other things that I would suggest is like really resting, really allowing yourself to take a break, really allowing yourself to unplug. Um, you don't have to be on social media all the time. Listen, no doom scrolling. <laughs> no, no doom scrolling, please. I didn't even know it had a word, but please don't do it. And if you are gonna be on social media, make it a time limited thing. Like I imagine that a lot of the people here are entrepreneurs, like y'all are business folks, y'all have stuff that y'all have to do. So get on, post your post, scroll for 15 minutes and get off, right? Like go do your own thing. And honestly, what you'll realize is once you start to let go of those things that are distractions, they create more space for you to do the things that you really want to be doing anyway. Also, Stop letting people shame you <laughs> about certain things. If you take five naps a day, take five naps a day. Like if you have the space to take five naps a day, take five naps a day. Make sure that you're still doing the things that like you need to do. Like if you got kids, take care of your kids. <laughs> if you got to respond to emails, please respond right. to your emails. Not saying to like not do your work, but take your naps. Take your vacation time. Like I've seen a lot of people saying, oh, I have all this vacation time stored up for the, for the year. How? Why are you not taking days off of work? Because listen, I'm at home and I'm still going to take these days. <laughs> no, I am going on vacation. <laughs> like, Stop it. Um, so take your time off. 
also like stop letting people shame you about doing these things that are self-care um and just be patient with yourself like be patient with the process be patient with the things that are happening Mm -hmm. and try to find ways to maintain hope because we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow we have no idea lord what's going to happen in november We don't know how long this pandemic is going to be going on. And I I will be open and honest that I am having a hard time maintaining hope as well, but I'm trying my best to do any of the practices that will help me to know that there is something to hope for. So if you do have religious practices, do that. Yoga and meditation can be a great way because you're when you're focused on what's happening in the moment, it's hard to be downtrodden about what's going to happen in the future. So the more that you can redirect yourself to be in this present moment, that can be helpful. But definitely patience, not feeling like everything has to be done today. And hopefulness, I think, are really good ways to to deal with right now. Perfect. So, <laughs> tell us more about what happens at your wellness at your wellness center, Worth Wisdom and Wellness Center. Yes. So, mostly it's therapy. Um, I started back in March and January. I had this grand idea of starting my own private practice. And then I resigned from my job in February. And then the pandemic started in March. And I was like, um, God. What you doing? Excuse me. I did not ask. What? Um, but to be honest, it has it's been one of the best things. And so I mostly do therapy. I'm full-time psychologist. And I also am a registered yoga and, te- yoga and meditation teacher, meditation teacher. And so I do offer retreats and meditation and yoga classes. Um, there is going to be more rolling out with that towards the latter part of the year moving into next year. Um, but those are some of the things. And consultations like trainings and workshops and so if y'all need a speaker for an event that you're doing please let me know I love talking about this stuff but yeah I like I'm passionate about spreading the word about self-care and I have a a separate wellness page if you will um called be selfish that is about practicing self-care and making sure that you're you're investing in yourself so that you do feel nourished so that you can take care of your family when they need you to. So all things wellness, all things yoga, all things meditation, all things therapy is generally what's happening over at the wellness center. Yay. Well, (laughs) that's all I have for you. You dropped some gems. I will say you did drop some gems and I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Kayla. It was so nice to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Not The Wifey Type, the podcast. If you love the show, make sure to subscribe so you'll know when new episodes drop and rate and review so others will know how much you love the show too. If you want to keep up with me personally, you can follow me on Instagram at Not The Wifey Type. Until next time, I'm reminding you to belong to yourself.